Hi everyone, and welcome to the Business of Customer Love podcast, brought to you by Mention Me. I'm your host, Simeon Atkins, and thanks for joining us today. Growing your brand through customer love might seem like an idea that belongs in the company cafe rather than the boardroom. But identifying, growing, and activating a base of loyal fans is serious business, and the results of harnessing customer advocacy can be truly transformational for both your company and your customers. We gather experts from across the space to shine a light on how you can unleash a virtuous cycle of sustainable organic growth where your best customers keep coming back and bringing their friends too. So let's get into today's episode. So I'm excited to be joined today by John Sills, author of The Human Experience. John, welcome to the show. Hey, Simeon. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. So you're here today to help dispel some of the myths surrounding customer experience and provide some key strategies that brands can use to grow through their biggest fans. But before we get into that, do you want to give us a quick introduction into who you are? Yeah, yeah, thanks. So yeah, I'm, uh, now the also the, the human experience, but I'm also managing partner at uh, an organisation called The Foundation. We small consultancy, we help organisations to put the customer at the heart of their business and improve their customer experience as a result. Before that, HSBC for a long time, looking after customer experience there, started out working on the front line in branches and started life on a market still, actually, uh, when I was 14, selling haberdashery, which I have no idea still what it is, but <laughs> you learn a lot about what matters to people when you're spending time with them on the front line. So yeah, that's, that's who I am and what I do. Lovely. Where was that market stall out of interest? Plankton in Essex. So I yeah. think if you're going to run a market stall anywhere, it's got to be the East End of London or Essex, I think, for it to be a, for it to be a proper one. So yeah, back down by the seaside. Very nice. Couldn't agree more. Um, so it's a tradition on the show to get things kicked off. Um, I'd love you to share a time recently where, as a consumer, you've experienced customer love firsthand and, and really what that meant to you as a consumer as well. Yeah, do you know, I, I'll share a, a story a bit different, actually, because there's quite a lot of stories in the book that I talk about. But um, I think I'll, I'll share a slightly different one, a more recent one. So people that know me well know that I really like lunch and know that I really like going to Honest Burgers. And opposite the office, we've got uh, one of our, we've got a branch of Honest Burgers. And in fact, if you hit the fire alarm in our office, our meeting place is at Honest Burgers. So it's a really great benefit, a silver lining if your office is burning down. Um, and, you know, I've been going there for three or four years now, and I have a slightly odd order. So I quite like the plant burger, which is the vegan burger, but with real bacon on top. Uh, because I'm not vegan, I just kind of, I kid myself that the plant burger is better for me, but I still really like bacon because it's the greatest food ever invented, if you can say it's invented. So, you know, me and the team go in there quite a lot, and they've got a great team there, a manager there called Liz, you know, and it's such a lovely place to go. It's a really lovely atmosphere. You've got the kind of music there. You've got the kind of the whole feel of the place. You've got plants everywhere. They kind of have a bit of a laugh and a joke with you. Bring the bring the food over. And so I suppose my story of customer love is over that three or four years, just really, really enjoying going in there and building the relationships. But the reason I thought it'll be interesting to share is because about seven, eight weeks ago, things changed a little bit because uh, the manager, who I mentioned, was called Liz. She left. She said that you know she'd been there four years. She was going to move on. And and I kind of expected that in hospitality, you know, people move on. But what I didn't expect was what happened next. Because over the next few weeks, as she left, the rest of her team left with her because they were so committed to her being the manager. And then actually the whole place started to change. All the plants left because it turned out they were Lizzie's plants that she took in there um, to put in the, in the restaurant. And all the photos came down because it turned out they were all her photos. 
and there were lots and the music changed you know the playlist started to change and I found this really interesting because up until about eight weeks ago if you'd asked me the question I would have thought I was recommending Honest Burgers I would have thought I was recommending the brand but it turns out I was actually recommending Liz and her team um, and you know Honest Burgers still gets a lot of credit because they've allowed their team to be empowered and have the freedom to make the branch and make that restaurant like it was but it was that individual person, it was that individual team that we were kind of really committed to. And I went back a few weeks ago, just after the team had changed, and I ordered my normal order, plant burger with bacon, and uh, and they didn't understand it. The new team couldn't understand how you could have these two things together. And I've spent years kind of cultivating this as my special. So it's a big lesson for me of like a great brand, great organisation and a great team. But actually, when it came down to it and things changed, I hadn't realised how much of that was the personality of the team and the manager coming through, rather than just being something that, I presumed the brand had just said this is how we want things to look. Yeah, and a great example there of you, you're you're buying in not just the brand, but actually the people that represent the brand as well. And I think we'll probably touch on that probably later in the show as well. The importance of that those frontline workers in kind of people, you know, really feeling an affinity to your brand. I think that's a great example. I'm also going to make it my mission to find another example of great meeting places. I want to see if I can top um i want to see off on top of that because that's just a great example yeah 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 brilliant okay so let's kind of dive into the um well i was going to say the meat but given your example of the plant-based burger there i'll uh i maybe find another example there but um let, let's get into the um you know what we were going to discuss um in the show today so in your book the human experience um you talk about the three myths surrounding customer experience. And and when I was kind of reading snippets of the book, I found this really, really interesting because it's three areas that you highlight that you'd think, you know, are synonymous with customer experience, but actually the way that businesses are approaching it is, is probably almost detrimental to them. So I'd love you to elaborate on firstly, what these three myths are um, and secondly, how they can be potentially holding back businesses today. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And just on your plant burger point as well, that's the problem, isn't it? None of us, none of us know what's in the plant burgers to be able to say something different instead of me. Um, yeah, so so I guess the book the book came around like you know two or three years ago, really, because uh, you know I won't go through the whole story, but I was on this old steam train with my with my wife and my son, and we were going through uh, we were going through kind of the English countryside on a on a day, and you know it had like you know big leather seats you could sit in and nice oak panel tables to spread your food out on and a, lady coming down with a trolley of homemade food it was really beautiful and my son said to me oh daddy is this what it's like when you get the train into london every day um and so i kind of laughed and thought about it and i was like no emphatically not actually it's nothing nothing like it at all and it got me thinking was well, that interesting because the sign of progress really is that you make things more efficient uh whilst keeping the level of quality at least the same and if not better and it's kind of struck me that maybe over the last 20 years as organizations and industries, we've used all of this new technology that we've had to perfect the functional experience and to do more things more quickly in more ways than ever before. But at the expense of that emotional human experience, to your point, where you get that kind of love from, that customer love from. So I started looking into that. And the first thing that struck me was that actually there's these three myths that get in the way of organizations doing this. One is the myth of customer feedback. One is the myth of customer loyalty. And one is the myth of return on investment. And happy to talk about any of those, but it might be useful if I start with the myth of feedback, because I think that's the biggest one that's around how you really connect with your customers. Does that sound all right? Shall I go yeah, with that? Absolutely. 
So I think that the, the, the myth of the myth of customer feedback is interesting because we've had probably at no point in history more customer data coming into organisations than we've got at the moment. You know, we're inundated with data coming into organisations. Um, and as customers, we're in undated. We're being asked for our opinions, and you'll all know. You'll know what, and your listeners will know what I'm talking about. This kind of epidemic of survey requests. You know, you can't have any kind of experience now without immediately being asked, "What did you think about that experience?" Now, some of that is really useful. It's really useful for leaders and organisations to understand it. But part of the reason it's a myth is because there's all of this flood of information coming in, but it's all based around the business, not about the customer. So if you think about your customer's life as a wedge, I call this like the thin end of the wedge. If you think about your customer's life as a wedge that kind of goes left to right, like a triangle on its side. And at one end, at the thick end, you've got all the things that really matter to your customers. You've got them and their lives, their family, their friends, their hopes, dreams, ambitions, their jobs, the things they're trying to achieve, the ambitions they've got, the challenges, the things that get in the way, the services they use to help. And then right at the thin end of the wedge, is you and your organization and your business, a very small part of their overall life. But 99% of all of this information that's coming into businesses as a result of these surveys is about the thin end of the wedge. Mm. What do you think about us? What do you think about our service? What do you think about our products? Would you recommend us? Mm-hmm. And what that does is gives a very skewed view of customers to leaders and organizations because it convinces leaders that they're close to what matters to their customers. Whereas in truth, they're actually just close to their customers' opinions of their business. And it's a very subtle but a very significant difference. And that's why it's a myth, because the problem is our leaders now think in organisations that they are really close to customers because they've got this volume of data coming in. They think they are really close, but what gets missed is real connection with customers. And in the book, I went and studied organisations that did this and, you know, a couple of examples that do this, uh, companies that do this really well. So City Mapper, for example, they have a thing called the Travelling Circus. So whenever they're going to a different, uh, move into a different city, whenever they're going to you know, launch the app in a different city, they'll take a cross-section of their team and they'll go and live in this city for a month. And every two days, they'll move to Airbnb. So they get to experience what life is like really travelling around that city, not just what the data and the maps would show them. Chiltern Railways do the same. They ask all their senior leaders to live somewhere on the line, on the Chiltern Railways line. So they have to use their own trains every single day and they have to wear their name badge when they're on the train. And Alan Riley said, you know, the more formal the forum, the less I learn, because he learned everything he needed to know about his customers on the 752 from Princess Risborough to London Marlebone every day. So the organisations that do this really well are the ones that really immerse in their customers' lives, that really spend time in what's happening with their customers, go to their homes, go shopping with them, travel with them, not the ones that just rely on this massive data that's coming in. So that's the first of the myths that I talk about. There's something there you're talking with the the two wedges, which I found really interesting. On the one hand, you've got obviously... Um, what matters to the customers on the other end, obviously what matters to the business. We've, we've got another guest coming on called Brittany Hodak, who's written a book around creating super fans. And something that she says in, in her book actually reminds me of that. She says that super fans are created at the intersection of the store of your story as a business and your customer story. And obviously to your point, if you're just focusing on the kind of thinner end of the wedge, which is what's important to your customers, you're not meeting your customers at the point of where your story interacts with theirs. So kind of what matters to them and how it's relevant to obviously what you do. So I think that's that's really interesting. That, that Chiltern yeah. Railway example, I think is amazing as well. Just having to live on the line. You, you mentioned that to me the other day and I thought that was fascinating. 
Yeah, I love that. You know, just that principle, and, and and we saw this through all the companies that I studied. The principle of just using your own product, because it's so hard. We all see the world from the inside out. It's really natural. You know, it's the way we work as humans. We're closer to our own culture and background and beliefs and people around us. And it's the same in businesses. You're closer to your own colleagues and your own industry and your own regulator and your own products. But it's really hard to remember what it's like. It's called the curse of knowledge. It's hard mm-hmm. to remember what it's like to not know. And if you're in a complex environment, say banking, for example, very hard to remember what it's like to not understand money, to not understand overdrafts or APRs or any of the other acronyms that get that get used. So I really like that example you said of that kind of intersection between the two there. And and this probably actually touches on the, the second of the myth, which is the myth of loyalty as well, which is the one that I've had most pushback on. Um, and I say that, you know, the, the, like I've had hundreds of emails, I've had like three people emailing me about it. <laughs> but this kind of thought that, loyalty is is a is is a, is a myth because i think that loyalty can only really exist where where you are involved in your customer's life and where there are humans involved not just because of the products that you're using yeah i'd love to, i'd love to dive into that uh, in a bit more detail actually because i think loyalty is it's a word it's a bit like advocacy actually it gets kind of thrown around quite a lot and i think different people have different ways of kind of understanding it um, and certainly to call it out as a myth, I think is really interesting. So I'd love to dive into that in a bit more detail. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, a lot of it does come down to wording. I mean, language is so powerful and wording is so powerful. And I think that's why some of these things matter in organisations. I mean, my, you know, my story around the kind of customer loyalty and while I think it's a myth a few years ago, I used to use my local taxi company all the time. They're called Nils in Hartwickham. You know, local local car company, loads of cars, good prices, um, but you could only ever pay by cash and you mm. didn't know where your car was. You know, it was always just around the corner whenever it was late. And then this thing called Uber appeared. And now I had quite a few cars, low prices, but I could pay by card. Uh, I knew where the car was. It was on the map. I couldn't pre-book. That was a bit annoying, but it was more useful. So overnight, I stopped using Nils and I went to use Uber for everything. And then about a year later, Nils caught up. So they released their own app. And now I had a local car company that had loads of cars, good prices that I could pre-book. Mm. I could use my card and I knew where the car was. So overnight, I stopped using Uber and I went back to Nils. It might just be I'm not a very loyal person. But what this is for me is about usefulness. You know, it's about usefulness. You need to stay, as an organisation, you need to stay more useful than the competitors and the alternatives. If you do that, people will stay with you. If you don't do that, people will leave you. And if you or your listeners aren't sure, if you think about a company that you believe you're loyal to, because we all want to think we're loyal to companies. Mm. If you think about a company you think you're loyal to, and then you think, well, actually, if overnight they tripled their prices and half the product quality, would I still go there? Almost definitely not. The only reason you might is if you get some kind of social usefulness out of it. So, for example, Apple. You know, you might pay over the odds for an Apple product because you want to be seen as an Apple person because mm. it represents something about who you are. You don't want to be seen putting out an Android phone, for example. You might be that kind of person. Similar with Tesla. You know, they're no better than a lot of the other electric cars necessarily, but there's something about 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 the brand. So, the reason this matters is because it is slightly semantics. But the reason this matters is if leaders believe in loyalty, if leaders believe that customers are loyal, then they stop trying. They just focus on onboarding. They just mm. focus on winning the customer, getting the customer on board, getting the customer into their business. And then they stop trying, you know, and there's lots of stories. I heard a great story the other day where I did a presentation on this and 
And one said to me, do you know what? After your presentation, I went and spoke to my bank because my bank are offering £200 at the moment for new customers to join. And so I spoke to my bank and said, well, I've been with you 30 years this year. Can I be given £200? And the bank, the person said, oh, I'd love to do that if I can't, but I'm afraid that's just not how the business works. In the end, that bank sent them a bunch of flowers, which was a nice touch. But the bank, the bunch of flowers wasn't worth two hundred pounds, and it would have been better. <laughs> it would have been better to send the bunch of flowers without being asked to. Mm. But it's that interesting thing, this waiting towards uh, new customers. It, mm. If you believe in loyalty, you stop trying because you believe customers are just going to stay with you, and it doesn't exist. To my point about honest burgers before, we're loyal to friends, family, followers. You know, you may be loyal to people you know. You may be loyal to football teams because mm. it's a community thing. But outside of that, you're not really loyal to any kind of more faceless brand, I don't think. Yeah, and I think that's that's interesting because I also probably assume that brands might think that loyalty is kind of like the the final stage. You've got a customer, they've shown some kind of loyalty and that's it. But there's probably another stage above loyalty, which is around advocacy, where you've really, really bought into the brand. You almost feel like a fan of the brand and so it would, be, it would make it even more difficult for you to switch because you feel like you have an affinity to that brand and a love for that brand probably a lot of people feel that way about apple um but i suppose that goes that goes beyond loyalty it, it's it's not just about you coming back as a customer it's about you saying i love this brand so much that i would actually go out and tell my friends and family and bring them like i almost can't help but do that i feel like an extension of that company it's exactly right, you know, and there's definitely, it definitely isn't a binary, is there loyalty or not? There's definitely a spectrum here. And you can certainly get to your point, customers, that as you move up, you do become advocates, you do start to represent the brand, you know, you're so, you know, pleased with the experience they give you, but also it's often some kind of social connection you've got there that means you want to, uh, you know, so like Octopus Energy, for example, I'll recommend Octopus Energy a lot. Not only because they're a great energy company, and I think they're doing a lot of good things in the energy market, but they're good for the world as well. What they're trying to do is good for the world. The same with Riverford for me, the VegBox mm-hmm. producer that we use. You know, these are kind of companies, Patagonia, a lot of people will do this with. They really believe in the mission of what's being trying to be achieved. So you will be, you want to uh, share it and advocate for it because you want other people to be involved. Tortoise Media is another one mm-hmm. with what they're trying to do to journalism at the moment. But having said all that, all that really does is create more elasticity. So I will give those brands a bit more give. You know, if they screw up and they make some mistakes, you know, and all of those brands I've mentioned have done things in the past with me as a customer I've not been as happy with. I'll kind of forgive them a little bit more in the way you might forgive friends or family a bit more if they're closer friends and other people you don't know quite as much. But there's always a line. always a line. There's always a tipping point. And, you know, once that tipping point gets hit, then it's not loyalty, it's just usefulness that we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So what about this third myth then around ROI? Can you uh, go into that in a little yeah. bit more detail? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, so the myth of return on investment. I mean, as someone that used to work in a big organisation and trying to get business cases approved all the time, this one kind of triggers me slightly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, trying to get cases through the project through the CFO. I think the thing here, this is quite simple to explain, I guess, in that bad customer experience is very expensive to provide. You know, organizations or people in organizations often get told they need to prove the value of doing something good for customers. If you can show it's going to bring in enough revenue, then we'll let you do this thing that really makes a difference for customers. And that kind of makes sense, but also a lot of improvements for in customer experience, you can't directly link it to revenue. You can't directly say this doing this for customers is definitely going to make them buy more products or definitely going to make them recommend this to more people. There is an element of belief that's needed in that. 
But what you can be definite about is that good customer experience is going to save you money as an organization because bad customer experience costs you money. So I talk about in the book this uh, theory called uh, failure demand, which is from Vanguard Consulting. And it's essentially the demands that are placed on your service and on your system as a result of you failing to do something right for customers in the first place. So we worked with one organization a while ago and 33% of all the phone calls they had coming into their contact center were customers phoning back up because they weren't happy with the answer they'd been given the, third, the first time. And that you see this happen all the time. You ring up the contact center, you don't get the answer that's quite right, or you only get the answer to the specific question you've asked. Mm-hmm. An hour later, you realize, oh, actually, I need to know this other thing now. And you ring up again. You see it in uh, kind of communications, lots of emails wasted. I got a uh, bought a new car recently through Volkswagen, and they sent me three letters on the same day in three different envelopes, all about broadly the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, bad for me, bad for the environment, bad for customers as well. I had a, uh, an occasion recently, I won't go into the full story, but I had to buy a bow tie at short notice. I had to get it on next day delivery, it didn't turn up. When I rang up the, co- the company to try and sort it out, I was on hold for 35 minutes before I got through on the call. And then they spent another 35 minutes haggling with me over whether they were going to give me £7 refund or £10 refund. You know, this went on for 30, 35 minutes. It got escalated to various managers. They said their IT system couldn't process it. They said they could only give me a gift card. And after an hour and 10 minutes, you know, I finally, I mean, it really wasn't worth the money, but, you know, I do this professionally, so it's good for the story. After an hour and 10 minutes, I finally got a £10 refund because the next day delivery hadn't turned up. Now, that is really bad for me as a customer. I've wasted my life as part of that. But it's the organization. Just give me the tenner. Just do that automatically when it hasn't turned up. And then you save yourself a phone call. It's no wonder they've got unexpectedly high call volumes if they're spending an hour and 10 minutes haggling over three pounds. So you see this kind of thing all the time, the way that organizations deal with these problems. That's where the myth exists. Because actually, if you give a great experience, you give the customer the benefit of the doubt, you get stuff sorted out quickly and right the first time, your costs will be much, much lower and much better for your customers as well. And then I believe they will buy more from you too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this leads really nicely into the next point I wanted to discuss with you and um, really focusing on the title of the book. So the human experience, I'd, I'd love you to kind of explain what exactly does a good human experience look like in the context of customer experience and why it's so important to get right. I think we've kind of touched on some of those areas already, but I'd love you to elaborate on that further. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So in, in, the, in the book, I kind of talk about these seven behaviours that I think matter. I'm quite keen to stress it's not another framework. It's not exhaustive necessarily. But I think at its heart is this principle that at the moment, it feels like organisations are full of humans who aren't allowed to act in a human way. Mm. You know, you've got lots of humans that get recruited and then they immediately get tied up in processes and procedures and rules and regulations. And you get this kind of, I would if I could, but I can't situation where both the customer and the colleague know what the common sense thing to do is, but they're just not allowed to, to do it. And so that's why at the heart of the book, it was about humanity. And it's not just about having humans, I should stress, you know, it's really important that you can create a great experience that's online or through apps or through websites, but you can still have a human element to that, about showing that humanity, acting as a human, thinking as a human, talking like a human, not wrapped up in all kinds of jargon. Now, the seven elements that I sat behind that are things that I believe just show kind of what a good human relationship would look like. And in the book I tried, I think it worked, I tried to imagine what this would be like if you were talking about a real relationship with someone. So, for example, you'd want to be accessible. 
you know, if you imagine being in a relationship with someone and they never answered the phone or never replied to your WhatsApps, or they kind of emailed you, know, you, but it came from a do not reply email address, that wouldn't be a particularly great relationship, would it? You know, you want them to be consistent, not having mood swings all the time. You know, you want them to be kind of flexible when things need to change, Respect, uh, respectful of each other, responsible, taking ownership of their actions. You want people to be straightforward. You want your partner to talk in a way that you can understand as well. You know, just talking in a kind of natural language, natural human words. So if you just really think about what a good human relationship looks like, whether that's with a partner, friends or family, the same is true for organisations. You know, it is just about really, really being human and being able to show that flexibility. I mean, I'll give an example of flexibility. When I moved house a few years ago, I mentioned I had a young son. He was about four or five at the time. And the biggest thing for us on moving day, the biggest stress for us was him, actually. You know, it's a big transition for him, moving from one house to the other. Lots going on. You've got the removal team here, packing up all the boxes. And also, frankly, if he's running around being a bit of a pain, that's going to make the whole day slower too. The removal team that turned up, straight away they spotted that that was the case. And so they set about getting him really involved in what they were doing. They let him draw on all the boxes. They gave him pens to draw on the boxes. They gave him a box to create a teddy bear prison for him to pack all his teddy bears into, worrying that he was really into that. They even gave him a little tiny model, a little toy model of the big removal van that was outside loading up all our things. Now, none of that was on the quote. You know, none of that was probably why we would have chosen them in advance. You know, we were looking at a few other factors. But the fact that they did that shows they were really flexible on the day. They saw what we really cared about and responded and reacted to that. It made it much better for us, you know, it put us at ease. It made it a great day for him that he remembers with fondness rather than fear. But also, to my point before about ROI, it was better for them because mm. they got him out of the way. He was busy doing stuff. They could get on with everything else without us being really stressed as well. So that's kind of what I mean when I talk about a human experience. And, and at the end of the book, I basically have my, my final line is just, if in doubt, be human. And for all of the seven areas I can talk about and I talk about in the book, really is thinking about what's the human response here? What's the right thing to do as a human? If you do that, if you think about that and you build your experience around that, you can't go far wrong, I don't think. I think I might need the name of that removal company because we're actually looking to move in the next couple of months and we've got two young kids as well. So um, I yeah. think uh, my yeah, recommendation. Well, they're brilliantly, they're called AH Trip. So I really like that. It's kind of quite nominative determinism. Um, but uh, yeah, AH Trip would be my advocacy, would be my recommendation for them. They were really superb. Yeah, absolutely. And I love this idea, the, the comparison that you made about um, cu- uh, customer experience and the relationship. Just, I just had a thought of my wife sending me like a text with a do not reply email. I think that's, that's, that's excellent. It's, it's a really nice visualization. You're right. That's exactly how you'd want to be treated by a business as well. It's interesting because we, we, to your point earlier about words, you know, we were talking about the words with loyalty and, and feedback. That word relationship, you know, it gets overused so often. Every organization talks about wanting to build customer relationships, relationships with our customers, etc. And that is the right thing to try and do. But the behavior that then comes out of the back of that is nothing like that. It's nothing like what a relationship looks like. And again, I feel like it's a word that's kind of lost all meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, uh, I, we, we talked previously, my family from Islington and my, um, I found out recently that my uh, great, great uncle, I think, had a, had a shop in Islington um, a long, long time ago. And I found an advert in a book from 1923 for his store. And at the bottom, uh, it said kind of our aim 
is to make your casual custom permanent. I think. And I just thought, I really loved it. I thought well, it was so simple. You know, I've got another one just in front of me from around the same time period where it says our aim is simply to have a satisfied customer. You know, and I think we've lost some of that simplicity and we've lost some of that in, in all this language of build relationships. We've lost this simplicity of you just you just really want to earn your customers' decisions in your favor. Mm. And really, if you do want to build a relationship, you need to really think about what that actually is, not just say the words and then do a whole load of behaviors that suggest the opposite. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd love to start to take some of the discussion points that we've had there and make it a little bit more practical. And, and for the the people listening to this, um, give them a way of maybe kind of like actioning some of this on their end. So we spoke before the show about the importance of data and segmentation as a way of brands being able to enhance their customer experience strategy. Um, can you provide some examples of where you've seen companies doing this to good effect and, and what impact that ultimately had on the business as well? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a really good question. I think that that data is so important. I know I talked earlier about the myth of feedback and you know, having the data coming in, if it's used in the right way, can really can really kind of help you make a difference. But what's what's important is not to just go down the route of a very kind of simple segmentation where you give everyone two word alliterative names and titles and everyone fits nicely into these boxes because it's just not really how how customers work and how people work. But I think what you do need to start with is thinking about what are you trying to achieve. So really trying to look at you know, a particular customer journey or a particular customer mission, a particular kind of demand space. What's really going on here? What are you trying to achieve? And then what are the behaviors you might need for different customers to help you achieve that commercial goal? So there's one example of um, a a big retailer, a big supermarket chain that we worked with a number of years ago, and they were looking to roll out new tills, you know, new different types of self-service tills and three or four different types of self-service tills they wanted to use. And the simple thing would just be, well, let's look at our customer segments and decide who's going to use what. But again, it doesn't really work like that. What you needed to do was starting to like separate out the missions that customers are on and then the different kind of type of customers that are going to be doing that. So we looked at, well, actually, you've got three types of mission that you do when you go to a supermarket. You might be doing your kind of, uh, you know, your basket shop, going in, just picking up a couple of items, picking up the basket. You might be doing a kind of trolley shop. It's just kind of a few more items in there, you know, a bit more than a basket, but not quite your full weekly shop. Or you might be doing your big weekly shop where it's just like piling up over the sides, everything in there all at once. So you've got these different missions straight away that you're looking at when you're going into that supermarket. Now, if you're looking at in that technological adoption, you've then got some people that are going to influence other people. And this is where it becomes really important to kind of look at what you want to do over time. So you're always going to have your early adopters who are going to adopt any new technology, whatever it is, because they just want to try things. And so you don't need to try with them. You don't really need to try to get them to try it because they're going to do it anyway. Your next group, they're the people that you need to really focus on. They're the slightly bigger group that will probably do it once they see the early adopters do it, but are a little bit less, uh, a little bit less sure. And they might try and do it for some of those missions, for not others. So they might be more confident doing it for the basket shop because if it goes wrong, they've only got two or three items they need to rescan or get help with. Whereas if you're walking in with a big overloaded trolley and it goes wrong, that could be another 10, 15 minutes. So again, there's different risks weighted in what you're going to do. And then you get that second group uh, involved. And then the third group take notice of the second group and the fourth group take notice of the third group. And actually the fifth and sixth group, they will only ever do it once everybody else is already using the new technology, once everybody else is using the new tools. So you don't bother about them. 
You don't bother contacting them. You don't bother telling them about it. You don't bother wasting your time and effort trying to get them to do it. You just focus on the core group, the social influencers that are going to influence everybody else. So you really need to be a lot more specific, I think, and targeted about who the people are, what the missions are they're on. It's almost like a matrix, what that combination is of person and mission that you can learn from, that you can experiment with, that you can get to gradually influence other people. Because that's how you build change over time, not trying to get everyone to do it uh, uh, in one go or not trying to just focus on one segment. Because even within that segment, they might have different experiences. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I love that example. Um, would you be able to share some of the kind of impact that that had on the on the supermarket yeah. at all once they started doing that? Yeah, it had, it had two big impacts, really. I think the first is that it really helped them very quickly identify what the good and the less good parts of the new technologies they were rolling out were, the new tools. Because actually with those early adopters and with the next group, they were very clear of staying close to those customers, of observing what they were doing, reaching out to them to get their feedback. They could make very rapid changes very early on with those customer base. And that meant that the second and third groups were much more likely to then start using it because they'd already made a lot of improvements. Again, that's an advantage of doing it that way not trying to you know put it to everyone in one in one go and then secondly it then helped them identify of those three new tools they were only going to take one forward because they realized the other two just weren't working through the, to the first two groups so rather than carry on and keep pushing it out they were like, Do you know what? If, if it doesn't work for these two segments who are the people that are really up for it that really want to try it and are really going into it positively they're not going to do it so they end up rolling out the third type of teal instead that became their dominant teal in the supermarket they were in and ended up creating a lot more efficiency and it was better for customers as well and ended up having all the commercial benefits you would expect so part of this is around the experience it creates but part of it is about rapid acting and learning rapid experimenting and then you start to be able to kind of build a much more um, sustainable experience as a result yeah and I, the reason i love that example as well is that they were making those changes based on the customers themselves, not assumptions that they were making internally and then rolling out the changes. So I think that's a, obviously it's a great way to do that. Um, so we've, we've covered yeah. some amazing ground today. I think just in bringing that all together, um, what would you say is the number one thing that every business can implement this year to start growing more sustainably through their biggest fans? Yeah, I, so, so I would be looking really at how you properly connect with your customers. We talked about Chilton Railways and City Mapper before, but all of the organisations that I studied in the book all had the same thing in common, that they all had programmes in place or ways of working in place that kept them really, really close to the things that matter to their customers. So AO.com, uh, John Roberts, the CEO there, he, every day he goes and works on the, in the contact centre, he goes and wanders around the contact centre, he stays close to what's going on. Dicing Watson at Riverford goes to goes cooking with his customers. He goes to go kind of cook in their house. Uh, you know, in the NHS, they do big dinners for NHS blood donations. They do big dinners with the blood donors to understand what's really going on. So, so my number one thing would be get behind that data, get behind all those feedback surveys, actually reduce those. So it's only the things you really need to know about because then you'll get a better response as well. But think about as a as a leader in business, how do you connect with what really matters to your customers? How are you there in their home with their permission? Uh, you know, going shopping with them. You know, what are the things you do that does the children always thing of really using your own products and staying connected? If you do that, you'll get up to the thick end of the wedge and you can work out how to be most useful in their lives rather than just keeping pushing out your product and asking for their opinion on it. That would be my one big thing. 
John, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. No, thanks, Simon. Really enjoyed it. Good to, good to see you. You've been listening to the Business of Customer Love podcast hosted by Mention Me. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to join us next time where we'll be speaking to some more amazing guests about how you can harness the power of customer love. See you again soon.